0: The s
1: From the front lines, your national movement-building show, and today we're going to talk about the prisoner George Jackson. Uh, I want to say start by thanking Barbara Holland, one of my an hour regular listeners. I want to say a little to my grandchildren, uh, Rader Alexander and Ava Lily Ward Wallace and Layla Ward Wallace, who while listening streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. I want to thank all of you, our regular listeners, some of you for fifteen and fifteen years. I won't say twenty, but I think we've been on around fifteen. And I want to thank Claude Marks of the Freedom Archives because he's going to be doing some important work about the life of George Jackson. Now I wrote a book about George Jackson called Comrade George. And for a lot of prisoners in the United States, they we just called him Comrade George because at one point he signed a letter that way, and that's where I got it from. But for a lot of you, who is George Jackson? We live in the age of mass amnesia created by the system. Uh, so the first thing is George Jackson was what we call the patron saints of prisoners. Now, it's hard to believe... That in 1971, when he was murdered by the prison guards, there were about 200,000 prisoners in the United States, about 40% of whom were black. That would mean 80,000 prisoners, black prisoners. Even in 1970, George is talking about the tripling of the prison population In response to the black rebellions of the 60s, how can we imagine that today there are 2.5 million people in prison in the United States of whom almost 1 million are black? How is that possible? Well, it's a horrible counter-revolutionary response to black rebellion. It's not about black crime, folks. It's about black consciousness and imprisoning and killing black prisoners. Now, George Jackson was one of the most conscious political prisoners of all time. Most of us came to get to know him through his amazing book, Soledad Brothers, uh, The Prison Letters of George Jackson, which his attorney, Fay Stender, was hoping would get him out of prison. Instead, he was charged with murdering a white guard after he wrote this book or right before it, which he didn't do. Uh, and then before he could go to trial, he was murdered by the prison guards. So what's the common theme here? Uh, George was killed, at, I believe, when he was 28 years old. Martin Luther King killed in his early 30s. Malcolm X killed in his 30s. Um Fred Hampton killed when he's 21. You know, there's a lot of revolutionary talk now, but I think a lot of people understand well, I'm really not sure I want to do this because the price of rebellion is so high. So many black people were killed, including whites too, who fought for black people. Uh, so many people went to prison, including me, which I'll talk about that you really have to ask yourself whatever happened to the 60s, and I think the biggest thing that happened is the system came down on us like a ton of bricks and decided to punish deeply anybody who protested and killed a lot of people. So the reason I'm discussing George Jackson now, among other reasons, is that on August uh, 21st, of this year. We're going to celebrate, uh, funny way to say it, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the murder of George Jackson in August 21st, uh, 1971. And this will be 2021. So it's hard for me to get my head around this whole story. I'm not going to do a complete stream of consciousness. Uh, One thing you need to know is I wrote a book about George Jackson called Comrade George, an investigation into the life, political thought, and assassination of George Jackson. Uh, Two really nice reviews, one from my friend Howard Zinn, said, Comrade George is a passionate yet careful analysis of the life and assassination of George Jackson. Its language is angry. Yup but it subjects the official explanation of Jackson's death to a meticulous examination. More important, it connects the killing of Jackson to the current upsurge of revolt in the prisons. One cannot read this book without a feeling of outrage at the humanity of the system we live under, and yet one also comes away with a sense of the possibilities that an ongoing struggle possesses for the future Howard Zinn. And then because this book, more than 10,000 copies of my book went into the prisons, we got a great review that said, one of the most valuable and enlightening revolutionary manuals in our possession, the People's Collective Trenton, New Jersey State Prison. And I must have gotten, oh God, I might have gotten a 1,000 letters from prisoners throughout the publication of um, Comrade George. Just one little interesting story is that I just realized is that before this was published by Harper and Row, my book, which is now published, uh, now called Harper Collins, it was published by a group called the Hovey Street Press, which is a movement press. And I'll maybe get to that story later. And then we, we needed to do—the response among the prisoners was so great, because my book also has a lot of good quotes from George Jackson— that we needed money to reprint it. And I just read in this that there's a group called Resist. I'm sure that was one of the groups that gave us the money. But we asked the prisoners to write letters of support to Resist. And they got so many letters that they gave us the money to republish the book. But I went and read it in the book. It said we published 6,000 more copies. Can you imagine that? all of which were given to prisoners for free. So as you'll see, my life is very tied to that of George Jackson. Uh, I'm very, I don't know, proud, excited to be part of the 50th commemoration of his life, which is really the point, not his assassination. And also I'll be working with the Freedom Archives that's doing a project called the 99 Books, which is when George Jackson was killed, they went into his cell And they found 99 books in there. And the Freedom Archives, in a very brilliant concept, uh, is going to do a whole program in August around the 99 books. And I'll be one of the people recording a tribute to George. Now, you know the Labor Community Strategy Center has a uh, strategy and soul bookstore. And, Claude, if you're listening and friends, uh, we're not going to get all 99 but we certainly may get five in the 99 to highlight those we don't already have to put in the uh and solve bookstore to commemorate the life of George Jackson and his reading. Um, where do you start? Uh, I think I'll start with some quotes from of George from the cover of my book just because I know he said them. Uh, let's see. And then, um, let's see. Okay, so here's some opening quotes. All my life I've done exactly what I wanted to do, just when I wanted. No more, perhaps less sometimes, but never anymore, which explains why I had to be jailed. Man was born free, but everywhere he's in chains. I never adjusted. I haven't adjusted even yet, with half my life already in prison. Born to a premature death, a menial subsistence wage worker, odd job man, the cleaner, the caught, the man under hatches, without bail, that's me, the colonial victim. Anyone who can pass the civil service examination today can can kill me tomorrow. Anyone who passed the civil service examination yesterday can kill me today with complete immunity. I've lived with repression every moment of my life, a repression so formidable that any movement on my part can only bring relief, the respite of a small victory or the release of death. In every sense of the term, in every sense that's real, I'm a slave to and of property. I've surrendered all hope of happiness for myself in this life to the prospect of effecting some improvement in our circumstances as a whole. I have a plan. I will give and give of myself until it proves our making or my end. I'm convinced that any serious organizing of people must carry with it from the start a potential threat of revolutionary violence. So one of the things to understand about prisoners is that we dream of violence. We dream violence is imposed on us. We dream of violence against prison guards, of police, of anybody who ever harmed us, essentially the system, because we are locked up every day by people with guns. Uh, You're locked in your cell. And, uh, I was in a cell, and then I was very fortunate to go to Concord State Prison, where uh, there was a period of actual, um, what was it called, uh, prison reform, and some very decent things were done at Concord, including that, yes, we had cells, but they had doors on them, not bars. How's that? It meant a lot. And there would still be a glass window... Where, yes, the same screws, a.k.a. guards, would come by with a flashlight to make sure that you had not run away. Uh, Nonetheless, it meant a lot. And, of course, that's why they got rid of them. Now you hear that we don't have enough beds for prisoners. Notice, not enough cells for prisoners. Enough beds. Just sure. Lay the slaves out a hundred in a room call it a dorm, have them all drive each other crazy, have them all eventually turn on each other. It's a miracle that the prisoners were able to organize. Now, the bare bones of the story is that George Jackson uh, had been in and out of prison already as a teenager. And then he was uh, involved in a robbery. Uh it's not clear he was, not clear he was even involved in the robbery. So I'll take a step back. He was charged with being in a robbery. And, uh, well, as he would say, I, I'm sure I did a few, but not the one I was charged with. And one of these horrible public defenders said, I want you to take a plea. And we have to just talk about how public defenders, good and bad, are not given the resources to defend how 95% of the people cop a plea and go to prison, so-called right to a fair trial. And he thought he was going to get six months. He ended up getting what's called an indeterminate sentence, one year to life, meaning it's creepy to even discuss this. He was held by the prison system from one year to life. He had no control over that. They could let him out in one year, two years, eight years, ten years, or keep him in prison for the rest of his life. I think they've gotten rid of the indeterminate sentence, but they replaced it with such horrible sentencing that now people are getting fifteen years to life, twenty years to life, forget about one year to life. So no, the system will not allow itself to be reformed. So I'm gonna read you a little bit about from George's Oh, I see. Uh, There's a long autobiography in there, but I'm going to move right away. He had an attorney named Faye Stender. Faye Stender was a wonderful woman and a lawyer, a Jew, who fought for George and got him the contract to write his book and was trying to get him out of prison. At a later point in her life, someone from a black revolutionary group went into her house, uh, forced her to sign a confession that she had not been willing to give arms to the prisoners, which was not her job, and then shot her several times, tied up her whole family. Faye Stender was paralyzed from the waist down, and a year later she killed herself. I tell you this because... You may ask me, then, why do you do this stuff? Uh, Doesn't that get you sick? And the answer is, of course it does. Gets me very sick. Uh, There's cruelty inside the movement. There's craziness. There's stuff that happens that you wouldn't believe. But we did not put a million black people in prison. We did not kill George Floyd or... Trayvon Martin, or the hundreds and hundreds of names you know, uh, we didn't drop a bomb on Hiroshima. We did not kill 4 million people in Vietnam and drop napalm on them. So for those of you who say, well, I don't want to join the movement because there was this really nice white lawyer and uh, somebody on our side shot her and terrorized her, I say, welcome to the real world. you got to make choices. Uh, I fear that could have happened to me, but my experience has been very, very positive in the movement. I've had my share of minor betrayals, but no one has done any physical harm to me. And in general, the black community is taking great care of me, and the movement has taken great care of me. So I'm very happy to be in the movement, but as I tell Cheney Martinez and others, Revolution without illusions, as Mao said, a revolution is not a tea party. So, yes, stuff's going to happen on our side that we don't have to defend. We just have to accept that that's part of the imperfection of the human beings who choose revolution against a system that's permanently genocidal. All right, so here's some writings on April 1970. This is kind of long, but it's good. This is from George Jackson's Soledad Brothers. On the occasion of your and Senator Daimely's tour, Senator Daimely being one of the few black elected officials at the time, an investigation into the affairs here at Soledad, I detected in the questions posed by your team a desire to isolate some rationale that explain why racisms exist in the prison with, quote, particular prominence. This is George Jackson from Soledad, Brother. Of course, the subject was really too large to be dealt with in one tour. In the short time, they allowed you, but it was a brave scene. My small but mighty mouthpiece, speaking of her, and the black establishment senator... (laughs) I'm sorry... Diamondly, would love to hear himself described like that if he's still alive. but uh, and the black establishment senator and his team, invading the state's maximum security row and the worst of its concentration camps. I think you're the first woman to be allowed to inspect these facilities. Thanks from all. The question was too large, however. It's tied into the question of why all these California prisons vary in character and flavor in general. It's tied into the larger question of why racism exists in this whole society with particular prominence tied into history. Out of it comes another question. Why do California joints produce more Bunchy Carters and Eldridge Cleavers than then over the rest of the country? Parenthesis, uh, uh, Bunchy Carter was with the Black Panthers, as was Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, the California prison system, including George Jackson, Uh, Did generate a lot of black revolutionaries. So that's what he's saying, that it's created a lot of pain, but it's generated a lot of revolutionaries. And it's not automatic that one will lead to the other, by the way. Now, I understand your attempt to isolate the set of localized circumstances that give to this particular prison's problems of race is based on a desire to aid us right now in the present crisis. Now, there are some changes that could be made right now They'll alleviate some of the pressures inside this and other prisons. But to get at the causes, you know, one would have to be forced to deal with the very center of American, and he spells it with a K, American political and economic life at the core of the American historical experiences. The prison didn't come into exist where it does just by happenstance. Those who inhabit it and feed off it existence are historical products. The great majority of his, uh, of Soledad pigs are southern migrants who do not want to work in the fields and farms of the area, who couldn't sell cars or insurance, who couldn't tolerate the discipline of the army, and of course, prisons attract sadists. I'll take a minute for that. Just put it away. Prisons attract sadists, and so do the police. When you're talking about police reform, this is Eric speaking. I've been in a lot of thinking about this. You have to understand that the average person who joins the police does so to inflict harm on others without having anything inflicted upon him or herself, which is why they shoot first and ask questions later. After one, Back to George Jackson. After one conceives that res- racism is stamped unalterably into the present nature of American sociopolitical and economic life in general, and by the way, now the definition of fascism is a police state, where the political ascendancy is tied into and protects the interests of the upper class, characterized by militarism, racism, and imperialism, and concedes further that criminals and crime arise from material economic sociopolitical causes. We can... Then burn off all the terminology and peniology libraries and direct our attention where it will do some good. So one thing I, I know you like both, you don't want to, do, anyway. George Jackson is another one of the autodidactics in prison. Um, prisoners are amazing as a group. They read like crazy. Uh, so do I. Uh, they read book after book. They stay up reading. In, in reading, you can somewhat escape from the immediacy. But they're also great intellectuals, as you can tell from how George writes, and that is one of the amazing things about him and one of the reasons they killed him. Back to George Jackson. So the logical place to begin any investigation into the problems of California prison is with our pigs of beautiful Governor Reagan, radical reformer turned reactionary. For a real understanding of the failure prison policies, it's senseless to continue to study the criminal. All those can afford to be honest know it's the real victim, that poor, uneducated, disorganized man who finds himself a convicted criminal is simply the end result of a long chain of corruption and mismanagement that starts with people like Reagan and his political appointees in Sacramento. After one investigation of Reagan's character, what makes a turncoat, The next logical step in the inquiry would be a look into the biggest political prize of the state, the directorship of the Department of Corrections. Ronald Reagan at one point in the late 1940s was a progressive, even a radical, was allied with the Communist Party. He really was. And then by 1980, of course, he was the governor of – oh, by 1980, he was president. I'm sorry. And he became president by being governor of California and cracking down on black people. All other lines of inquiry would be like walking backwards. You'll never see where you're going. You must begin with doctors, assistant directors, adult authority boards, roving boards, supervisors, wardens, captains, and guards. You have to examine these people from director down to guard because you can logically examine their product. Add to this some concrete and steel barbed wire, rifles, pistols, clubs, the tear gas that killed Brother Billingsley in San Quentin on February 1970, or was locked in his cell and the pick handles of Folsom, San Quentin, and Soledad. To determine how men will behave once they enter the prison is of first importance to know that prison. Men are brutalized by the environment, not the reverse. Now, you're listening to Eric Mann. You're on VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com. I'll be reading from this book, Soledad Brother, to commemorate the wonderful life of George Jackson. I'll be reading also from my own book, Comrade George, An Investigation into the Life, Political Thought, and Assassination of George Jackson. If there are prisoners listening, uh, please send me an email at eric at com, or you can send it to the Strategy Center, 1506 Crenshaw Boulevard, LA 90019. It's great to read George, you know, just to immerse myself in his life. Uh, D'Angelo, we're going to go for about five more minutes, then I'm going to take a music break. And then if you're out there, especially ex-prisoners, At 818-985-5735, as I think Jackson Brown said, the the only number we all know by heart, 818-985-5735, you can even start calling in now and queue up, and around 345, we'll go to the phones, okay? But uh, I actually realized that as I stop here for a minute, I want to talk to you about a media thing. Uh, you know, I have my bouts of depression, like everybody else, but one reason I'm fundamentally optimistic, which is different from depression, is because of the urgency of the fight and the people's lives who are at stake. As we speak now, there really are a million people in prison, a million black people in prison, I'm sorry five hundred thousand Latinos. And yeah, about uh, uh, almost a million whites. Now you can say, well, no problem, except that uh, blacks are only 10% of the population and whites are 50. So that's shocking that black people are uh, 25 to 35% of the entire prison population and more. So the strategy center... And our lead organizer, Channing Martinez, right as we speak, are working with board chair uh, Kelly Gomez, board members Monica Garcia, uh, Nick Melvoin, uh, Jackie Goldberg, and uh, others to try to get another $9 million taken away from the school police in L.A. and get $200 million put into black schools. So one reason you should work with the Strategy Center, info at org, and say, yeah, I want to get involved with you people, is because we don't just talk about the death of George Jackson. We talk about the lessons of George Jackson to fight the system now. Again, as Channing said, building machine to take on the system. So I don't get depressed by this. I'm so impressed. That's interesting. I'm not depressed. I'm impressed with George Jackson and his wonderful writing. So I'm going to read for about three more minutes, D'Angelo, and then I'll uh, see if you can find the Black National Anthem. would be great. Lift every voice and sing, okay? Okay. so let's see. Where, we're back to my friend, George Jackson, Comrade George. Now, he's writing to his attorney, Faye Tender. Uh, okay. I I give you a good example of this when I saw you last. Faye Stender. We're am presently being held, they never allow us to leave our cell without first handcuffing us and belting or chaining the cuffs to our waste. This is preceded also by a very thorough skin search. A force of a dozen or more pigs can be expected to invade the row at any time, searching and destroying personal effects. The attitude of staff toward the convicts is both defensive and hostile. Until the convict gives in completely, it will continue to be so. By giving in, I mean prostrating oneself at their feet, only then does the attitude alter itself to the t- one of paternalistic condescension. Most convicts don't dig this kind of relationship, though there are some who do love it. <laughs> With a group of individuals demonstrably inferior to the rest of society in regard to education, culture, and sensitivity, our cells are so far away from the regular dining area that our food is always cold before we get it. We never get anything but cold-cut sandwiches for lunch. There's no variety in the menu. The same thing week after week. One is confined to a cell twenty-three and a half hours a day. Overt racism exists unchecked. It is not a case of the pigs trying to stop the many races attack. They actively encourage them. Now, I could just realize I could do a 10-hour show on this, Um we got to get these people out of prison, and we got to help the prisoners' rights movement. Uh, they're fighting upstairs right now. It's 1.10 a.m., June 11th. No black is supposed to be on the upstairs tier with anyone but other blacks, but mistakes take place, and one of two blacks end up on the tier with nine or ten white convicts. Frustrated by the living conditions are openly working with the pigs. The whole ceiling is trembling. In hand-to-hand combat, we always win. We lose some time if the pigs give them the knives or zip guns. Lunch will be delayed today. The tear gas or whatever it is drifts down to sing my nose and yes. Someone is hurt bad. I hear, hear the meat wagon from the hospital being brought up. Pigs probably gave them some weapons, but I must be fair. Sometimes, not more often than necessary, they'll set up one of the Mexican or white convicts. He'll be one who has not been sufficiently racist in his attitudes. After the brothers, engaged by previous, enraged by previous attacks, kick on this white convict whom the officials set up, he'll fall right into line with the rest. Did you get that? So what happens is if a white convict is not too racist they'll set him up into a fight with a black person, purposely so that he goes back to join the racists. Uh, Now I was in in some way uh, I was in state prison in a moment where a lot of the white prisoners were very good on black issues. Hard to imagine. These were younger guys. They were a lot there for drugs. You know, they were part of the the working-class counterculture, you could say. And they were drug addicts. You know, They were guys that had been caught breaking into something and mainly to get a hero- Back then, it was a lot of heroin, heroin fixes. And then they would get caught, and then they would be caught with possession of heroin and breaking and entering, and they'd go to prison, and they'd get maybe two to five. But somehow, in 1971... A lot of the young whites were pro-black, and we had a lot of black and white unity. So, with this, we're going to take a break. I'm going to come back. I'm going to try to cover some more ground. I'll read your poem. If you're interested in talking to me about prisons and George Jackson, nothing else, folks. You know the rules. Eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. If you've been in prison, if you're an ex-prisoner, ex-con. I don't like this formally incarcerated. I think we call ourselves ex cons proudly. But whatever you want to call yourself, if you've been in prison, give us a call. If you're fighting against the abuses of the prison, eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. We'll take a short break. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines and you're on KPFK ninety point seven FM.
2: The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973. Or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time.
1: Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars. Trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK.
2: I woke up this morning, there were tears in my bed. I killed a man I really loved, shot him through the head. Lord, Lord, they cut your jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground sent him off to prison For a $70 rivalry They closed the door behind him And they threw away the key Lord, Lord, they cut George Jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground He wouldn't take shit from no one He wouldn't bow down on deal Authorities Cause it was just too real Lord, Lord, they cut George Jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground The present gods, they cursed him As they watched him from above But they were frightened of his power They were scared of his love Lord, Lord, so they cut George Jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground This whole world is one big prison yard Some of us are prisoners The rest of us are guards Lord, Lord, they cut George Jackson down Lord, Lord, they laid him in the ground
1: So hey, everybody, this is Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontlines. Hey, D'Angelo, thank you. I should have known that song. Was that Bob Dylan? Thank you so much for finding that. That was great. Um, I'm going to go to something else here because I do want to read you something from my book and why it had a lot of influence. Uh, it's pretty good. It, it When it came out, uh, I want to thank... Uh, Hugh Johnson, my editor, many, 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 many years ago, uh, 818-985-5735, I started doing an analysis of the official story of how George Jackson was killed. And it became somewhat, yeah, famous, Uh, Eric Mann disproves the theory. What's interesting is I had no investigative capacity. I didn't, I was already, uh, all I did was read the official stories and all the contradictions in the official stories. I didn't have any insider information, but their stories were so contradictory that I was able to poke holes in it, which was pretty good. Uh, Interestingly, it's what the system does. It just puts out stuff and the public goes, yeah, that sounds good. George Jackson, uh, he had an attorney named Stephen Bingham, and Stephen Bingham brought him a gun, and George Jackson put the gun under his wig. He was wearing an Afro wig. Then he went back to his cell, and he tried to use it, and then we killed him. That's the official story. makes no sense how an attorney could smuggle in a gun into the prison, why George Jackson would put a gun into his wig, but hey... uh, the murdering of black people doesn't take very much good story, does it? The system is, you know, just says whatever it wants to say. It uses a drop-down gun, you know, what that is. It just—whatever the system wants to say, the vast majority of white people, and sadly even a few black people, say, all right, I guess that sounds good. So 818 985 would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to talk about George Jackson— if you've been in prison, and if you know about George Jackson. So until then, I'm going to read you uh, from my book. Um, It says, from the day of George's death, the prison officials said that George received a gun from Bingham, his attorney being Stephen Bingham, but couldn't get their story together how that could have happened. They wanted to achieve two conflicting objectives. First, to convince the public they were running an impenetrable, impenetrable fortress, but on the other hand, to create a somewhat believable story about why George had been murdered, that would involve saying that someone had gotten George a gun despite their precautions on monday august twenty third Warden Lewis Red Nelson told the San Francisco Chronicle he was quote, unable to explain how the weapon escaped detection by a device at the gate which signals if a metal object was going through. Later on that day, San Quentin business manager Irvin Ritter told the examiner that, quote, Bingham was searched before he entered the visiting room, but not the briefcase he brought within him. Now, that made no sense. Uh, He said... Bingham walked through the metal detector, but not with the briefcase. Now, that explained how the gun supposedly got in, but didn't reflect too well on the competence of the San Quentin administration. So the next day, after further rehearsal, the San Quentin authorities submitted their revised story. The Chronicle proudly announced, quote, the Chronicle was able to compile the first complete version of what happened, according to the prison officials. So note what he's just saying as a journalist. I got the first story coherently from the prison officials, which means even the prison officials didn't get their act together, so the San Francisco Chronicle helped them. 818-985-5735. As the young attorney went, this is their story now, as the young attorney went through the metal detector, the machine registered apparently from some metal from the briefcase. An officer opened the briefcase and found a portable cassette tape recorder. As is customary procedure, the officer opened the battery case of the tape recorder to determine if it was functional. All seemed normal, but authorities believe working parts had been taken out of the machine and the gun concealed in the body of the case itself. This version still subjected the San Quentin officials to criticism, but at least made it look like Bingham had used some ingenuity to follow them. That does not mean he did it that way, but let's leave that for a while and go on to the next part of the story. This is Eric Mann reading from my book, Comrade George, An Investigation into the Life, Political Thought, and Assassination of George Jackson. Eight one eight nine eight five five seven three five. Bingham passed a wig, a gun, and a clip of bullets to George during the visit, is the official story. The visit took place in an individual cell right off the main visiting room. There was a screen between Bingham and George, but the screen had an opening to allow attorneys and prisoners to exchange papers. George's visits were always supervised by a special guard who sat right outside the cell and kept an intruding eye on him. John Thorne, George's attorney, said that during their last visits, I spent most of the time looking at George, but every time I looked up, that man was staring right into my face. I distinctly got the impression he was trying to overhear our conversation, or at least to intimidate us. Now, that doesn't mean there was no chance to get the material to George, especially if the guard was momentarily distracted or asleep. was at least very difficult, and if the guard behaved that day, as George and his attorneys frequently complained he did, it was impossible. At this point, only the guard on duty would be able to tell us how closely he spied on the visit, but San Quentin officials have never produced him, because to admit that passing the gun was possible would expose their incompetence, and to admit it wasn't would expose their savagery. George then tried to get the gun, the wig, and the bullet clip back to the Adjustment Center to store for a future escape attempt. If step one was possible, and step two was improbable, but still possible, step three is where the official story completely breaks down. Each time George left the Adjustment Center, and each time he returned, he was skin-searched. Skin-searched. Skin-searches vary from prison to prison, but the basic procedure is that you take off all your clothes, which are rifled through by a guard. You lift up the underside of your feet, lift your arms for them to check your armpits, open your mouth, spread the cheeks of your ass, and display your genitals for their careful scrutiny. In some prisons, the guards run their hands through your hair. We're told that at San Quentin, because the black prisoners protested angrily about white guards messing with their hair, the prisoners were made to run their hands vigorously through their own hair while the guards supervised. It was supposedly just before the skin search that George's gun, wig, and bullet were discovered. The examination of your hair is usually one of the most thorough parts of the search. And if the rectum and the hair are the two most common places where prisoners try to get things past their guards, but the things are always very tiny, like a tab of acid, LSD, or some other drug, or in rare cases, a bullet, for George to try to get a bullet through the skin search would have been risky but possible. But for him to get a wig, a gun, and a clip of bullets through the skin search is about as believable as if they said they had discovered an M16 concealed under his armpit or a fragmentation grenade in his mouth. This strategy was not only impossible, it was unnecessary. It was not that difficult to get a gun into the prison. One of the main avenues, the guards. Their motivation? Racism and greed. The guards based a lot of their dwindling security on an alliance with the most racist white prisoners. But by keeping racial tensions up to a fever pitch in the prison, they had to deliver weapons to the white prisoners to keep them in a fighting mood. As George put it, when he, the white racist prisoner, decides to attack us, he has the best of weapons. Seldom will a pig give a con a gun, though. It has happened, however, in San Quentin three times to my knowledge. So the point is that if George ever wanted a gun, he could bribe or beat or steal from a white prisoner. There's no way he could get it to the other procedure. In a society based on money and greed, there's virtually no way to stop contraband from coming into a prison or Harbor, for that matter, as strange as it may seem, although guards do almost no work. They feel terribly overworked, underpaid, and underappreciated. Some of them see their jobs cynically and supplement their salaries, sometimes by a $100 a week or more, by bringing heroin into prison. They're usually paid in cigarettes, cartons and cartons of them, which the prisoners buy from the prison canteen. The guards bring them to a grocer or drugstore owner they have worked out an arrangement with to illegally resell them. The move to a gun is a major step, but a possible one, especially if the prisoner is white, since he wants it to protect himself from the black people, as willing to pay the prime, the price. Sometimes the guard is also paid off by the prisoner's friends outside the walls. Once inside the walls gambling debts, simple purchases, or strong-arming can move the gun all over the prison from whites to blacks. This is Eric Mann. You're listening to Voices from the Frontlines. I am reading from my book, uh, I was going to say Comrade George, an Investigation into Life, Political Thought, and Assassination of George Jackson. We have about six more minutes to go. Uh, Is that right? How many minutes? Six. I got it right. Uh, If you want to call in, 818-985-5735. So the point is not that George had a gun, or this is the way he would have gone about getting one, but only if he did want a gun, there were better ways of getting one than the way the state of California dreamed up to justify killing him. Throughout the week after George's death, the Chronicle and the Examiner were functioning as house organs of the prison system, parroting whatever new revelations they were handed by state officials. But the story about the pistol and the wig was apparently too much for even the Chronicle to swallow. On Saturday, August 28th, a week after George was killed, the Chronicle ran a fine article with the headline Pistol and Wig Experiment. The Chronicle brought together a model, an Afro wig, and an automatic pistol yesterday in an attempt to reenact a key sequence of the bloody events at San Quentin Prison a week ago. Prison sources identified the gun as a Spanish-made Astra M600. This nine-millimeter weapon is eight and a half inches long and one and a quarter inches wide. It weighs approximately two and a half pounds. An identical weapon was laid on a table before a model wearing an Afro wig. The grip handles were removed, as they were from the smuggled piece. His attempts to hide the gun by lifting the front of the wig and sliding the weapon onto the top of his head failed. He eventually removed the wig, placed the gun inside, and forced the hairpiece on his head with some struggle. The wig was obviously askew, and with every step he took, The gun wobbled dangerously, bring his hands instinctively to his head. If the Whig theory is sound, Jackson would have had to walk 50 yards, half a football field, under the watchful eyes of a guard before he reached the adjustment center where authorities say the gun was finally spotted. A week after they put it out, the main factual assertion in the prison official's story was being ripped apart by the radical media, almost anyone who's ever been in prison, and even sections of the establishment press. So I'm going to sort of end with saying this, that today there are so many prisoners in prison I don't know how we still allow maximum security. I don't allow um, solitary confinement. I don't know how we allow the guards to now be making so much money, $100,000 or more, that they have a material investment in keeping prisoners in prison. I don't know how there's so much brutality allowed inside the prisons, and the only answer— is getting people out of the prisons. I don't know how there's a million people in prison when they were in there during Barack Obama's eight years and they were in there during Donald Trump's four, and now even Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not talking about getting people out of prison. You know, we have to get 500,000 people out of prison at a time if we're going to get 2.5 2.5 million people out. So here's what I suggest. I end every conversation by say, read, read, read. Uh, I urge you to get, uh, there's a beautiful new edition, I have the original small black one, but there's a beautiful one called Soledad Brother, Brother The Letters of George Jackson, published by Lawrence Hill Books, an imprint of Chicago Review Press. Um, It's a gorgeous publication. It's bigger. Uh, Frank, you're a little late, but come on out for one minute. Uh, Can we take him just for a minute? D'Angelo? Can we take the call? Go ahead, Frank. Yeah, I just wanted to say, yeah, long live George Jackson and long live Leon Trotsky. I've been to the university. And, uh, yeah, everything you've seen is true about it. It's the, uh, it's, uh, quite an experience being locked up in America. And, um, the American gulag system is producing a lot of revolutionaries. And, uh, hopefully this evil empire will be brought down soon. Thanks a lot that you get the last word. Um, And have you ever been in prison? Yeah, I called the university. (laughs) All right. Uh, It's the university, but there's still prison. Thank you for calling. Uh, I'm by saying that, that I know a lot lot of black prisoners that would love to go to the university and get out. Um, Get in touch with the Strategy Center, info at thestrategycenter.com. .org, info at the strategies, uh, org. Check us out at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. Send me an email at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. I want to thank D'Angelo Jones for just being very helpful, and that was great finding that George Jackson album, that song by Bob Dylan. Uh, I'll be letting you know more about the 99 Books Project by the... Uh, um, Freedom Archives. You can check out the Freedom Archives. They're doing wonderful work. And I'll see you next Tuesday at 3. Take good care of yourselves. All power to the people.
0: Friends I'll stay clear And state my case which I believe life